Welcome to The Read Along, a mini book club for your ears, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. I'm your host, Scott. I'm your other host, Anita. And join us on a journey through a good book, one, one chapter, chapter at, at a time. This episode of The Read Along is brought to you by Rumi. With warmer weather comes yard work and lots of it. Prune your trees and shrubs, clean your eavesdrops, replace those drafty windows you noticed over the winter, or you can call Rumi to take care of all of your outdoor and indoor home maintenance while you fire up the barbecue and relax. Visit rumi.ca, that's R-U-M-I dot C-A, or call 1-844-777-7864 and let Rumi's trusted local experts take care of your yard so all you have to do is enjoy it. How quick are you to forgive someone you've had a fight with? Uh, depends on who it is and depends on what the fight was about. I mean, that's a fair answer. Thank you. Obviously, there are going to be <laughs> arguments that you have with people which have far more lasting repercussions. Well, yeah. If someone has, you know, insulted my ancestors, maybe I hold a grudge for a little while. I don't know that you would if they insulted your ancestors. I don't know that I would either, to be honest. Don't think you're that attached to, to your ancestors. Of, yeah. I was trying to think of like a grave insult, and I'm like, I accept I wouldn't really <laughs> wouldn't really be all that insulted. Uh, I bring it up because prior to us actually recording, but after we had read the chapter, you, you had mentioned that it felt there was a bit of whiplash for you in this chapter because it felt like Nick and Johnny had a fight and then forgave each other very quickly. Yeah. Because <laughs> they do. They have this huge fight. Now, to be fair, it's because they're stressed out. Oh, for sure. There's mitigating circumstances. They're have, they haven't been looking after themselves at all. They're super stressed. Like, the situation is very dire. The eh, tempers are going to run a little high. No, but it's human condition. You can't do much about that. Fair enough. But uh, at risk of getting a little ahead of ourselves there. Sorry. Uh, bringing it back to this conversation, have you had, like... A heated exchange with a good friend, which you almost immediately just kind of like harsh words were said. And then like a few minutes later, you were both like, I'm sorry I said that. That wasn't called for. Oh, yeah. You and I have done that. Oh, for sure. Where one of us is just tired and cranky and snips at the other one who gets offended because they're tired and cranky and didn't deserve to be snipped at. And then like 10 minutes later after we've, you know, taken a break or more commonly had something to eat, (laughs) you're fine. And then you go, oh, I'm sorry. I was being a jerk. It, I was I was hangry, and I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we have a pretty healthy relationship overall. Me too. But uh, that doesn't mean that occasionally we don't get on each other's nerves. It happens. But we, generally speaking, still go to bed together at the end of the night, so. Yes. Sometimes Scott sleeps on the couch, not because he doesn't want to sleep with me, but because it's really hot in the bedroom. <laughs> yeah, when you've got two people <laughs> sharing a small space in a very warm bedroom during the midst of a historical heat wave, sometimes you just want to go to a different room where it's a little cooler. Yeah, where you can hog the fan all to yourself. Let the other person have the fan upstairs. You go downstairs, take the fan downstairs. Everybody gets a fan. Everybody sleeps in peace. And uh, generally speaking, I tend to let Nita have the bed upstairs. so Because I'm a nice guy. And I don't mind sleeping on the couch. 
And it's sometimes cooler downstairs. So. And really, waking me up in the middle of the night just makes for a cranky Nita. And that that will lead to a snippy fight. There yeah, you go. See, nobody see? wants that. Exactly. And so we've come full circle. Before we get into our latest chapter, a quick recap of our last chapter, in which our heroes leave behind black puddles of ooze at an ancient library, make their way to the Fez airport, where they hire their very own Han Solo so they can head to Carthage as quickly as possible to pick up the trail of clues, which will hopefully lead them to save the world, but not before Nick makes a boneheaded decision. <laughs> and that leads us into chapter 16 of Beneath the Rising by Premi Muhammad. So the chapter begins with Johnny admonishing Nick for trying to steal back the bribe, pointing out that that fundamentally defeats the purpose of a bribe. Right? Like, you're going to get us thrown in prison, which we just escaped from yesterday. <laughs> actual line in the novel, yeah. Yes. Now, in his defense, he points out, okay, well, this might not seem like a lot of money for you. It is a lot of money for me. So, like, take that into account. Well, here's the thing. In this context, I'm actually on Johnny's side. Because, yeah, it's a lot of money to him, but it's not his money that he is spending. Nope. It is her money that she is spending as she sees fit to try and get what they want. So really, he had no right to go in and try and take it. No, he did not. He was uh, very much in the wrong there. Yes. When Johnny says, you have no self-control, this sets Nick off. Because it smacks to him of hypocrisy. Yes. Because he's like, oh, you're going to lecture me about self-control mismaking deals with the devil. Yeah, okay, so <laughs> this is where we switch, and we're now on Nick's side for just, like, laying into Johnny, which you know he's wanted to do now for the past, what, three days? I mean, this is not the first time he's done it. Uh, there are points throughout this novel where he has called her to task. Yeah, but this one feels bigger. He not only says that she was perhaps rash in accepting a pact with ancient evils, but that she also went about creating the impossible box, which sent up a smoke flare, knowing that they were watching her. So, like, why invent an alarm clock that's going to wake up the bad guys if you know that they're listening for the alarm? And Johnny, she's like, but it's a really cool alarm clock. That's practically her defense. <laughs> uh, yeah, she doesn't really have one, does she? No, she doesn't. She uh, mainly defends her decision by saying that, look, say what you will about me making a pact with devils, but I have saved millions of lives. I've saved people from being sick and from dying. And Nick is like, and none of that matters because you're going to get everyone killed now. Yeah. You're going to save millions of lives just to kill billions of lives. Yeah. Uh, net loss there, Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> she says, well, right now we have a chance to save the world granted from her own hubris. And she tells Nick, like, maybe stop and think about the needs of the many for a minute. And Nick is like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not thinking about the many, Johnny. You're thinking about how you want to be the rich and famous hero who saved everyone. You're not thinking about the people that you're trying to save. That's and there's a big difference between saving millions of people and wanting to be the hero that saves millions of people. Yes. There's a gulf of difference there. Oh, great big. She does not deny that. What she does is deflect. Yes, because Johnny. She 
deflects by asking, do you understand how good it would be to get the world off fossil fuels? And he intuits this as a dig on his intelligence, even if she didn't intend it that way. He's like, yes, because I'm too stupid to understand climate change. Thank you. Why don't you explain it to me? Because you're the only person in the world who understands the big picture. Before she can react, Hamid shows up and is like, you done fighting? Because my plane's ready to go. Yeah, you can keep (laughs) fighting on the plane. It's time to go. Yeah. (laughs) He does not care. I like this guy. He assumes, uh, apparently, that they are a pair of rich kids who are basically seeing the world before heading off to college. On their gap year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she kind It's of, an excellent cover. Yeah. And why try to explain the situation to someone who does not need to know? Yeah. Basically, they're, they're a pair of rich kids sl- backpacking and slumming it across the Middle East to sure. see some of the world. Johnny's too busy sulking as well to really have a better excuse. So she just kind of lets it roll. Well, and there's nothing wrong with that. Johnny's whole MO up to this point has been... Only tell people exactly what they need to know and no more. And that includes Nick, unfortunately. So this lovely pilot (laughs) coming up with their excuse for them, she's got to be right on board. She's got to be. They board the plane, get themselves comfortable. Uh, Nick finds himself a bag of what he assumes are like cashews or dates or something. Nuts of some kind. He tries to convince himself he doesn't really care if he's hurt Johnny's feelings because she certainly looks like at least one of his comments has perhaps cut her a little deep. Yeah, because for the first time ever, she's upset and sulking. Yeah. Well, and I get the feeling that maybe he's hit a little close to home with some of those comments. Probably one of the only people who can hit close to home with her. Well, because, and I mean, this is getting a little bit ahead, but as he reminisces in this chapter, she's one of the few people who he's kind of taken his armor off around and vice versa. Like, as as much as Johnny has withheld from him, and it seems that there is a great deal that she has withheld from him, uh, that it, she is still withholding from him, despite the fact that she has now let him in on the whole magic and monsters thing, he still knows her probably better than anybody else. And so that means that he is the person who can wound her the deepest. Yep. Kind of how it goes. Yeah. Nick tries to kind of put this in perspective for us in a way here. From his perspective, this whole situation has cost him everything. His family is gone to Lord knows where. He doesn't know. He's lost his job. He's lost his house. He has nothing to go back to. And for Johnny, this is Tuesday. Yeah. Like, it's nothing to her. Even if she did lose her house, she could just get another one tomorrow. Like, it's nothing to her. The fact that she's angry over him doing something that he was doing with the best of intentions hurts him. Even if we agree that he was in the wrong, mm-hmm. it's still it's still a painful recrimination in this moment because he's like, I was just trying to help. Yeah. Well, in his head, he was doing what he thought was right. And to be punished for that... It seems grossly unfair to him. It Yeah, it does. Because it's that's that's a blow to one's confidence and one's ego, right? and and his confidence and ego are practically the only things he has left, and not even that. Yeah, Hamid guns it, and the plane takes off. And this is okay. This is like something out of Indiana Jones. This this plane ride that they're on. It's uh, not a passenger plane. It's a cargo plane. It's cargo plane. Yeah. So and they are, are they are cargo now. Yeah. They they are like great Muppet capering. Yeah. Just two people packed in with the luggage. Whatever they are bouncing against, he is super precious about his cargo back there, mm-hmm. this mystery cargo that we don't know. So it's totally illegal, right? Oh. Whatever's in there is totally illegal. 100%. 
Yeah. Which might actually be why three men in suits were chasing after the plane before it took off. And why he didn't stop when three men in suits were chasing his plane before yeah. he took off. Nick presumes that it might have been three people who were on the lookout for them, but it's very possible that Hamid is a smuggler and that they were after him. It's possible. <laughs> Let us not discount that. Either way, they are finally en route to Carthage. Diesel fumes filling the cabin with noxious air. <sighs> Sorry, I I know from life experience, diesel fumes give me a terrible headache. They also give Nick a terrible everything. We already know he doesn't travel well. So <laughs> That's true. Like the fact that he's not belted in, that there's like a terrible smell, that there's nothing comfortable. Like he has to pretend to be a statue for a little while to yeah. get like the air sickness down. Yeah, he does that thing I do when I start to get motion sick. Is just try to hold really still. Nothing... Nothing triggers if you don't move. Nick reminisces a little bit, partly because he and Johnny still aren't quite at the point of talking to one another yet, and partly just because he has nothing else to do while he pretends to be a statue yeah. for a little while. This is that cranky harumph moment that you get yeah. when, you, when you're done fighting but you're still mad. His mind takes us back, actually, to a confirmation about something we had speculated on literally just last chapter. Yes! Which is that he and Johnny are each other's only friends. Which is is not surprising for Johnny. It is surprising to me for Nick. Yeah, Nick has no one else he's as close to. Yeah. He has his family. He has a handful of acquaintances, but doesn't have any real friends other than Johnny. Which kind of surprises me. I figured Nick would have friends. It's kind of sad, really. It is. It doesn't surprise me for Johnny because everything we know about her screams that this is just how she is, right? She doesn't do people. But Nick, Nick should have friends. It doesn't seem right that Nick doesn't have any more friends. In a bit of what seems like terrible foreshadowing, Johnny is revealed to have signed a blood pact with Nick when they were eight years old. And my brain went, rut row. <laughs> why That's going to end badly. Why would it be a bad idea to sign a blood pact with someone who's already made a contract with devils? Yeah, but he didn't know it when he was eight. She certainly did. Yes. I don't know what that means. What? I know it's going to mean something, but I don't know what it means right now. Probably something terrible. Probably. Yeah. Is it Nick's demise? I hope not. Well, I also hope not, because as much as you found Nick a little grating last chapter, he's still a likable dude. Yeah. For the most part. Now in the air, and having had a few minutes to cool down, Johnny and Nick both do that thing where they both go to apologize at the same time and laugh about it. Yeah. This is the unshakable part of their friendship. Yeah. Johnny says, you know what? You're right. I was wrong to yell at you. I overreacted. You were doing something stupid, but I overreacted. <laughs> you were still, that doesn't mean you weren't doing something dumb, but I shouldn't have yelled at you for yeah. it. And Nick is like, you know what? You were also right. It was a dumb idea. I should not have thought to steal the money back. It would have jeopardized everything. You're in the right. And she says, look, at the end of the day, the thing is getting a plane, getting out of Fez and getting to Carthage as quick as possible was just an obstacle. And it was an obstacle that was easily overcome with money. And we've got so much that seems to be lined up against us. One easy thing that we could just knock down quickly, it wasn't a big deal. I just wanted to do it and get it done with. And he's like, I get it. I understand. We're just trying to go. Yeah. Just just take, shut up and take the money. <laughs> Nick decides, okay, with the air kind of cleared, let's get back to talking about business here. What exactly are we looking for when we get to Carthage? <laughs> so our situation update happens. And the situation is... Like, infathomably dire. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. Johnny says what they need to do is find a book that has the text of an ancient tablet on it. 
But first, they need to find the book which will help them find that book. Yes. So um, they need to find a book which leads them to a book which leads them to information, not the gate, information about the gate. Part of the problem is that the gate is in a city in what is now Iraq, but at the time wouldn't have been. A lot of the old names for these places are no longer used. They're long gone, either purposefully forgotten or just forgotten by the Because that's kind March of, how of history. history works, yeah. Yeah, and you know, it's Istanbul and Constantinople, right? <laughs> Some other force rolls in, conquers a city, renames it. Maybe the old city's name is lost, right? So part of the puzzle is finding out what the modern name of the old city is. Yes. So that they can go there and stop the gate. Um, she also needs to find a spell that will help them to seal it up. And while she's found some minor warding spells that might be able to help them along the way, the real thing she's looking for is something huge, something she calls the Heraclean chant, which might save their bacon. And the underscored word here is might, because yeah. she doesn't know for sure. But in order for it to work, it also has to be as close to the original spell as possible, because as has previously been discussed, a lot of these tomes are translations of translations of translations. When you translate something, errors are going to creep in naturally. Exactly. And There's a reason the phrase lost in translation exists. Exactly. So she needs to find as close to the original Heraclean chant as possible because it will be the most powerful and most correct version of that spell. Yes. Any mistakes could undo all of their attempts to seal this gate. And so she can't risk it with a Xerox, basically. She also knows that this spell is going to be costly because magic at that scale requires sacrifice of some kind. She doesn't know what that sacrifice might entail. Nick, perhaps stupidly, but very gallantly, says, if there is a price to be paid, I'm willing to pitch in. We I... can we can go Dutch on magic. <laughs> <laughs> As you do. And I don't know if that's going to be possible or not. It was very gallant of him, but it might not be a thing. It, it might, might not, not work. It might not, or it might. You never know. In a lot of occult fiction, as a uh, author or creator develops their magic system, there are often ways to mitigate the costs of magic, and one of those is have more people involved in the casting of the spell. Then you're drawing magic points from everybody, not just from one person, right? right? That's what like a large ritual is all about. It's about getting all of that energy from a lot of participants so that you don't necessarily need to just give it all yourself. Everybody that's, gives a little bit instead of one person giving all of it. That's why evil sorcerers generally get cults. Kind of might be what's going on here. We, we don't know for sure, though. Now, during all this exposition, Johnny actually stops for a moment because her subconscious mind caught onto something that Nick had said when they were fighting about the alarm clock, basically. But the ex exact words he was using is, I'm not the one who knocked out a wall and rolled out a red carpet and invited the ancient ones in. You didn't just open up the door. You practically knocked down a wall and invited them in. Yeah, and... Something about that has stuck in her brain, even though in the moment it kind of went by. And while she's in the middle of all of this exposition, she's like, wait a tick. What did you say about knocking down a wall again? And he's like, I don't know. It was just a stupid fighting thing. It's just something I said. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was mad. Yeah. She lets it slide at this moment. But this is, as far as I can tell, her genius brain starting to make a connection in the background while she's focused on all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we already suspected from earlier, we, we brought this up before, which is that the impossible box created its own gate. Yeah, might have. Yeah, and that's why the Ancient Ones were interested in it. Maybe. Because she found a way to essentially make it so that the wall doesn't matter. Yeah, but does it still matter because she's destroyed it? She destroyed it. 
chapters ago. Yes. She took it apart. She melted down the important parts. Like, she smashed the rest of it. Yes. The box isn't there anymore. Correct. Now, there's a couple flaws in that plan. Hmm. Johnny says she's the only person who could have done the thing. And indeed, she might be the only person who could have done the thing, but she has done the thing. She then went online and made some notes and collaborated with people. And we know that Rutger took a look at that box, a look at that box close enough that he was able to tell Nick later in the car, I've seen that box. It should not work. Based on everything that I was told, all the schematics that I saw, and the box itself, it should not work. Which means Rutger, at the very least, could replicate that box. That is my hypothesis. Is that Johnny is, Johnny's maybe the only one who could have invented it. She might not be the only one who could replicate it. No. If she left behind enough information, and if Rutger, her genius protege, who's himself a prodigy without magic. Wouldn't his version also not work? Potentially, but if he replicates exactly what she did and hands it off to someone with magic, they might be able to make it work. I suppose maybe. I'm just saying, Johnny was very smug about the idea that she destroyed the box, that she would rather die than give it up, and that she will never replicate it. But she let other people see it first. Other people are just Rutger. Even just Rutger is one other person with that information. Like, Nick has seen it. He has been in its presence. Nick doesn't have the technical acumen to replicate it, though. I'm suggesting that Rutger does. Oh, I know. And we don't know what he's up to in the background right now. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on Rutger, who might be totally innocent and may not have been approached by Drazenoth in the background and might not even now be building another impossible box for the monsters so that they can come in and destroy the world. I'm just saying it is possible that he has that knowledge. Johnny's knowledge of the box is not unique anymore because she did let that information out to at least one other person. Mm-hmm. No, I, I'm following you there. The, the part I'm contemplating now is... Why did Drazenoth approach Nick and not Rutger? Or maybe he did approach Rutger. We don't know that he didn't. We don't know that he didn't. You think Rutger would have said something, though? Not if he made a deal. Uh, we don't know enough about him to know whether or not he would make a deal. He might be tired of living in Johnny's shadow. Maybe it's time for him to step out and be his own boss. I mean, maybe. And it might explain why he apparently thrown up obstacles in their way. He's the one who as far as we can tell, called the police. That's just Nick guessing. That is just Nick guessing. But based on the information we had. I'm I mean, just, it's perfectly I'm just positing... plausible that Nick is correct, and it was Rutger, and maybe he does have a deal, and maybe this is all for naught. That's the real thing here, though, is they're rushing to find out which gate is going to open, but if Johnny invented a new type of gate, this might all be for naught. Yeah. Like, maybe, they're, it might be maybe them. they're going through all of this for absolutely nothing. It could be a giant, I'm not going to say red herring, but definitely a giant wild goose chase. A giant waste of time. If Johnny's laser focused on, well, they're just going to come through a gate like they always did, and not having realized she invented a whole new kind of gate. And again, this is all speculation. Oh, wild speculation right now. Possibly we're irresponsible off speculation. Off the rails. Yeah. Well, we're on the subject of the impossible box. And because Johnny does later in this chapter say that she was she would rather die than let that information fall into their hands, she did let it fall into someone else's hands, and she's not taking Rutger into account there. He is a loose end here. He does have that information. Yeah. He's the guy who always proof checks her work, and he stated outright to Nick in like chapter three of this novel, I have seen the box and it should not work, which means that he he knows the technical specs of the box. 
which means he could, in theory, replicate it. Again, I'm not saying that we didn't need a Johnny to invent it, but now that it's been invented, the cat's out of the bag, right? Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Anyway, yes. We've, we've spent a long time dwelling on this, and it is speculation, but Whoa. just putting it out there. Yep. Nick has a flashback, again, while they have another quiet moment, and he kind of dwells on, on how, how much danger they're in. He remembers a time they almost died falling through ice on a trip. Yeah. This seems to be that kind of all over again, but on a grander scale. But uh, at the very least, they can kind of rely on one another. And then he accidentally tells her that he loves her in this moment and is immediately mortified that that slipped out. Well, yes and no. I am not a 17-year-old boy, but when I tell my friends I love them, I mean it. Yes. I don't necessarily mean it romantically. No. But Nick is a 17-year-old boy who does happen to have feelings for the person he just confessed his love to. Yes. And while it could certainly be taken platonically, he does have very complicated feelings about her. Yes. Made even more complicated by the last couple of days. Yeah. Um, His love-hate relationship with his best friend. All he could do is hope that she doesn't say it back because he's like, no, that would be a lie. If she she said it back, she would just be trying to make me feel better. because Mm -hmm. And that would make me feel worse. And that would make me feel worse. But fortunately, before she can reply, some turbulence breaks the tension. Johnny goes and and checks outside the window real quick, like mildly panicked. And Nick is like, what's up? And she's like, well, you never know when like a gremlin's going to appear on the wing. She she uh, actually references the Twilight Zone, but that's yeah. what she's saying. And then she explains something to him she probably should have explained several days ago. Part of her pact with the Ancient Ones is that they cannot kill her. Directly. <laughs> yes. She has to live exactly as long as she would have, minus the time that she's burning using her prodigy powers, or it would be cheating on their end, is basically the argument. Yes. She once again kind of smugly and arrogantly uh, says, the Ancient Ones are pretty dumb. They're real easy to trick, but they have the cunning that you can only get over a million years. And so they are good at exploiting loopholes. So they could slow me down without killing me. Like they could break my legs, technically not killing me, would slow me down for a good long time. Or they could technically get someone else to kill me because it's not them killing me. It's someone else killing me. I'm not immortal. I'm just, they can't direct, they can't smite me. (laughs) Yeah. Here we fall into a legal gray area, though, because if you hire an assassin to kill someone for you, you are still tried for murder. And I realize we're talking about ancient beings and a magic covenant, but, like, is, is there a magical legal gray area? I would say yes, because the letter of the contract is, I, party A, cannot kill you, party B. But there's nothing specifically in the contract that says I, party A, can't strongly encourage that guy, party C, to kill you, party B. (laughs) Well, but maybe the wording of her covenant is important. That she would have lived as exactly as long as she would have. She certainly. Minus her progeny time. She certainly seems to think that they could get a proxy to do it. And I have no reason to believe otherwise. Fair enough. Johnny takes a moment now to also explain the way magic works. Because essentially, any spell, no matter how small, basically rewrites the universe. Yeah. Like, blink, and the universe is different. The entire universe. The universe you knew before is gone. It's erased. This is the new universe. It can be very similar, but it is not exactly the same. This is because magic breaks the natural order. So in order for it to work, it needs to change the natural order so that it works. Yes. And the only way to do that is to restart the universe from scratch. It's like when you're writing computer code. 
if you've added some new code, in order to make it work, you have to rerun the computer code from, from start. Yeah, you have to run the whole program. And that's basically how the universe works here. The universe is a computer program. <laughs> we are living in a simulation. <laughs> this got very Douglas Adams very quickly. <laughs> But this is essentially how you prevent causing paradoxes with natural laws, is that you've you've reset the universe and now that magic is a natural law. That's Yeah, that's more or less how she explains it. Yeah. So Nick is like, okay, so if I understand this, basically what you're trying to do with this Heraklion chant is you're trying to work a new spell into effect, which basically changes the universe in such a way that gates just no longer work. Johnny's like, basically, yeah, you've, you've got it. She's trying to retcon the gates out. Sort of, yes, because Kinda, uh, sorta. she she mentions that there was a time when cold iron was very effective at breaking magic. Yes. But at some point in relatively recent history, that stopped being a thing because some wizard enacted a spell so grand that it changed the immutable nature of cold iron so that it no longer is effective against magic. And her goal here is to enact a similarly grand spell that effectively makes it so gates no longer function. Again, failing to realize that she's invented a technological solution to the gate problem. Well, yeah. And Nick is like, cool. So that's plan A. What is plan B? And Johnny gives him that look of, uh... What plan B? Do you have an idea what a plan B could be? Do you know what we could do as a plan B? He flippantly is just like, well, then we'll just blow them up with nukes. And she's like, "Eh, well, I am a member of the Bilderberg group and I could probably pull some strings. And Nick is like, no 17-year-old girl should have strings like that to pull. Um, but Johnny does point out, look, at the end of the day, nuclear weapons are literally the best that mankind has to offer when it comes to just sheer firepower. Yeah. We have nothing better. Just blatant destruction. And I'm not even certain that that would harm them. It might wipe out a couple of the lesser ancient ones, but the, the real big ones it would probably eat it like soup. And that's that's a problem. So Are resistant to physical damage. Yeah, dropping nukes is a serious hail mary, but maybe not a terrible plan B. <laughs> she also at this point brings up the impossible box again, and we kind of got a little ahead of ourselves earlier when we were talking about it. But this is where she suggests maybe if we had weaponized that thing, we could have done something. But I'm never going to rebuild it because I cannot risk it falling into their hands. Which is fair. Yeah. With that kind of settling in. Nick, again, tries to break the tension with a crude joke, Mm. and that takes us out of chapter 16. It's a very Nick thing to do, to find something goofy and stupid to say to try and make her smile and sort of ease the tensions. Yeah. You want to take a quick trip into the conspiracy corner before we wrap up? Oh, yes, let's. I've stumbled onto a major company conspiracy, Mac. How about that for stress? What the hell are you talking about? This company is being bled like a stuck pig, Mac, and i got a paper trail to prove it. Check this out. Take a look at I mentioned the Bilderberg Group, because Johnny mentions the Bilderberg Group. Yep. And I get the impression you don't really know what that is? Not really. I took an educated guess, uh, but you actually did some research here. I didn't need to really do much research because I'm up to speed on many conspiracies. <laughs> so uh, the Bilderberg Conference is what it really is. And it's so named because it takes place in the Netherlands at a place called the Bilderberg Hotel. It's an annual to-do with global mucky mucks, um, where Western leaders kind of network and hobnob for a couple days. Um, But because it's a very private meeting, there's not very much uh, attention to it. There's no accountability. There's no media coverage. And there's a lot of secrecy surrounding what they talk about at these meetings, because it's a bunch of rich people rubbing shoulders and hobbing knobs, it's become a hotbed of conspiracy theory on both the right and the left. The people on the left think that it's a bunch of, you know, 
mega capitalists secretly pulling the strings to control the world through autocracy. The people on the right think that it's a bunch of like liberal hippie dippies trying to bring in communism and vaccinate everybody with five G's. It's it's because nobody knows what they actually talk about and they deliberately don't talk about what they talk about. It's just, well, they could be talking about anything. They could be talk- they could it's, be meeting with aliens. We don't know. It's it's ripe for conspiracy theories. Yeah. What we do know is the kind of people who have been invited to the Bilderberg Conference. And it includes like politicians, media moguls, industrialists, entrepreneurs, like the rich and the powerful that you would kind of expect to see at that kind of thing. So, yeah. Generally from the West. So it's kind of assumed that they work to like keep the status quo more or less in place. Great. Yeah. But uh, that's kind of what the Bilderberg Group is. So for those of you who don't know, that's what Johnny is referring to here. She is apparently a member, mm-hmm. which makes sense because she's a rich entrepreneur. Uh, a member with connections who can pull some strings. My goodness. I agree with Nick. No 17-year-old girl should have that kind of yes. power. <laughs> Probably no 17-year-old girl in the world should have nuclear weapons. Agreed. Indeed. <laughs> but again, that brings us to the end of the chapter. Uh, you'll want to read up on chapter 17 in time for next week. Absolutely. In the meantime, uh, the Edmonton Community Foundation. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. I'm Andrew Paul. And we're the hosts of the Well Endowed Podcast. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation, or ECF as we call it. ECF provides grants to charities through the endowment funds we create and manage with our donors. Hence the title of our show, The Well Endowed Podcast. Every month, we bring you a collection of stories and interviews with fascinating guests who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. Through these stories, we look at the space where endowments intersect with your communities. So if you're interested in the people and issues impacting your community, check out thewellendowedpodcast.com. You can check out uh, more about the Edmonton Community Foundation and all of the other supporters of the network and all of the other member podcasts, of which there are many new ones, right now at albertapodcastnetwork.com. If you find another podcast you might want to check out, you can find it on your podcatcher of choice while you're there. Probably where you're downloading us, you could give us a little rating and review. We'd appreciate it. Sure would. We would give you a shout out if you let us know about said rating on social media. (laughs) Ooh, that was a good segue. Well done, honey. Um, pick your poison. We are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Goodreads. We are at the Read Along. Most of theirs. We also have an email address. We are thereadalong at gmail.com. And with that said, as always, we love you very much, and we'll see you next time. For more Indiana Jonesing, probably. Thank you for joining us on The Read Along with your hosts, Anita and Scott Bourgeois. A proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, all read-along music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Cover art is by Aaron Beaver. Be sure to join us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Read Along, and check out our group on Goodreads.com. <laughs>